Matthew chapter 18 tonight. What a blessing to be able to be a pastor of a church that wants to go through the Bible. I'm so thankful to be a part of this uh, congregation. It's truly, truly a blessing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good to have you all here. Packed house on a Christmas busy time. I love that. Uh, that's so cool. Well, Matthew chapter 18. We left off um, last week uh, and we had to kind of, we were kind of running out of time, but you know, that verse um, 27 uh, talks about how uh, there was that miracle of Jesus uh, and Peter and the fish and the money in the fish, kind of a cr crazy, strange story that we sort of tied. But there's a few kind of interesting things about that um, just uh, that kind of are intriguing to me. Um, it's the only miracle with money that's involved. Uh, that's interesting. The only miracle recorded uh, with money. And also, uh, it's the only miracle he did something that actually he needed for himself, uh, which you and I know he didn't need to pay taxes. And that, that's the point he made with Peter. But he did pay his own taxes with the money, with the miracle. Uh, and all the other miracles were, had nothing to do with himself. It was for everyone else. That's kind of an interesting one. Um, but it's also a miracle that was the only miracle with a single fish. There were a lot of miracles in the Bible with lots of fish uh, or five loaves and two fish, but uh, this is the only one with a single fish. So there's some interesting things about this miracle, uh, but I'm easily uh, entertained. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's kind of cool. But um, now in chapter 18, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna have this interesting conversation because the disciples, they seem to be sort of obsessed with who or which one of them would be the greatest. You know, who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Who would be the greatest among them? And Jesus is gonna dive into this uh, here in chapter 18. It starts off there in verse one. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? One of the things that humanity is plagued with is comparing ourselves one to another. Um, competitiveness, and I'm all, I'm all for a healthy competition and fun, but when we start competing against one another to, to kind of discern which one of us are better than the other person, that's where it starts getting ugly. We start sizing up the other uh, and looking at other people. And you know, it's funny, a lot of times we're, we're really um, not really accurate in our ability to judge who is the greatest. Um, I, I, uh, I love it when you get into sports. Sports has a way of shaking out things, you know? Uh, you know, who's really great and who's not. And there's, it's amazing. There's people that come dialed in and they got the right clothes and the, they spent some money on stuff, but can they really, can they really deliver? Uh, in, in my little world of motocross growing up, I remember it was always funny, you know, people would show up to the motocross track and some guys, man, they had all the gear and fancy helmets and, and the newest, latest, greatest dirt bikes that were really high tech, you know, and, and they were flashy and super clean and all that. But that didn't necessarily mean that that was the fastest rider. In fact, sometimes that might be an indication of a newbie, a beginner. Uh, and you know, in motocross, it's a little humbling because they, they put you in classes right out of the gate. Like, and they'll, they'll tell you, like for example, there's the beginner class and you pretty much have to start there. Even if you think of yourself as a pretty good rider, a good motocross track will make you look like a beginner in the first 10 minutes. Uh, I might've even sent you to the hospital. Um, then, there's, then there was a class called the better beginner. <laughs> the better beginner, that's true. I mean, I'm making this up. The better beginner class. And then there was the junior class and then the in intermediate and pro class. 
Um, and you know, it's funny, it's all relative. We, we, once in a while, you know, I, I was getting to a place where I, I would jump into the, you know, after years of riding and stuff, I would jump into the intermediate and pro class, but I would be the slowest guy on the track there. But still, um, you know, trying to keep up with some of those guys. But I remember thinking, you know, I'm getting pretty close to these guys and start measuring myself against some of these intermediate riders and stuff. And, and uh, they were fast, jumping big quad jumps and stuff, you know, 100 foot jumps and stuff. And, and we were doing that as uh, Athey Creek, you, you, Athey Creek motocross guys, you know, we were there. Some of you did some hospital time. Uh, um, I, won't, I won't name you here in the room, all, all 10 or 12 of you. Um, but, uh, but it was kind of fun until one afternoon, a guy by the name of Andrew Short showed up to the track. Uh, this was quite a few years ago. I think it was around, you know, somewhere around 2008, I think, when this happened. So this is back a ways. Um, but we were out there thinking we were pretty fast. And then Andrew Short, who was ranked number three in the world at that time in motocross, he was super cross championship material. And he made the intermediate pro class look like they were standing still. Um, so it's all relative. Like it was very humbling. All the guys that were normally walking around like, yeah, we're the fastest, we bad, you know, and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, you're a toddler, basically. Uh, that's the way it looks. And that's, that's the way it is in the world. And I, I wonder how it's gonna shake out in the kingdom. You know, uh, people think they're awesome spiritually, you know, ministerially, um, you know, parentally. Like, we're amazing. We're, we're, we're spiritually dialed in. But I wonder when, when it all gets down to it, uh, how's it all gonna shake out? Well, Jesus is gonna give us some sort of pointers to beware, to watch out for not assuming that you are the greatest, but it's actually kind of the opposite. And, and um, you know, so, so the, the thing that you need to do is, like, like we on the motocross track, once you compared yourself to someone who's like ranked in the world, you realize, man, I know nothing about dirt bikes. Um, in the same way, when you and I compare ourselves to each other, we start feeling pretty good about ourselves. But when you hold your life up to Jesus Christ, you and I are toddlers, not even that. Like we don't even classify as anything uh, when we compare ourselves. It's all about who you compare yourself with. And, and Jesus is the one who's the model. So uh, it might be a very humbling experience if we rightly start comparing ourselves to Jesus instead of everybody else and, and saying, Lord, make me more like you. So, so all that to say, um, you know, comparing yourself to Jesus, Isaiah 64, if you remember, you can jot this down in your notes, 64, six, um, but we are all as an unclean thing. Remember it says that, We're, that's what we are. We're, and then when you compare yourself up to Jesus, you're like, oh man, unclean, an unclean thing. And our righteousnesses are as like a filthy rag and all we do fades like a leaf, the prophet Isaiah said. Our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. I mean, these are words that kind of explain the truth about who we really are and who we really are not. So we often think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Self-conceit is nothing but self-deceit. I hope you understand that. Uh, it's something that you learn through life. Uh, the older you get, oftentimes the humbling comes with that. But, um, but the Gospel of Matthew, you know, um, is gonna put it nicely for us here. Uh, Mark and Luke deal with this actually a little more harshly than Matthew does, interestingly enough. So we have that coming up when we study uh, Luke and Mark, those Gospels. But um, here in verse one, Jesus um, doesn't answer directly the question because I think if, if, you know, the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, we all know the right answer to that, don't we? Who is that? Jesus, it's always the right answer. He is the greatest. And you know, I, I, I marvel that Jesus didn't say, me. Like why, why wouldn't Jesus say, uh, hello boys, have I been with you so long? 
You know, like that, remember that thing we read last week? Uh, I, wonder, I wonder why Jesus just says, are you kidding me? You guys don't know this yet? Uh, you know, Peter, you were so close a couple chapters ago when you said, I'm the Christos, the, the, the son of the living God. Uh, you're getting close there. But uh, now they're saying, well, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Um, but I love Jesus because, because he's the greatest, he doesn't say, moi. He doesn't say that. Because he's the greatest, well, what does he say? Let's look at verse two. It says, then, uh, it says, and then Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. Um, now, before we get further into this, interesting, the disciples um, are talking really about themselves. And, and you say, well, Brett, they're, they're not really, they're just asking who's the greatest. But when you read the other gospels, what you realize is the disciples were constantly arguing about which one of them was the greatest, if you recall. In fact, um, you know, maybe you can remember this and jot this down in your notes, or if you're quick at turning, uh, Luke chapter nine, uh, verse 46 uh, says this. Uh, then there arose um, reasoning among them, which, which of them should be the greatest. These are the disciples. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him nearby. So same story, but this, this is where we get a little more information from Luke. In fact, um, after Luke 9, 46 and 47, then in Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 24 through 26, um, it says this. Um, this is later in the story. And there was also strife among the disciples. Now, now, no longer is it just reasoning among themselves. Now there's strife between them. It says, now there's strife among them, which is arguing which of them should be accounted the greatest. So whatever happened in Luke 9, they didn't learn anything. And now chapters later saying, which of us are the greatest? And now they're disputing this. And then verse 25, Jesus said, and he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but you shall not be so. But he that is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, let him, let he that doeth it serve. Um, you see, uh, Jesus starts to bring up this whole idea of the greatest is the servant. Um, the greatest is the younger. What does the young have to do with anything? Well, older was always the boss of the younger in Bible days. Um, but the Lord turns all of that around. Uh, all throughout the Bible, by the way, you know, how many times do we have an older brother serving a younger? Moses and Aaron is an example of that. Uh, Jacob and Esau would be a, um, an example of that. I mean, on and on we go. Joseph and his brothers that were older than he was. The Lord chooses the weak and the foolish, the least, the servant. Uh, that's kind of what we learn. So Jesus knew the arguing that was going on in their hearts. That's what we pick up from Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, that they were really spending a lot of time disputing which one of them, of the disciples, would be the greatest of, the, of all of them. Um, and that, that, that's not really recorded here as much in Matthew, but we, we get that from others. So after all that time, still not knowing it, the human tendency is to compare who prays more, who's more spiritual, who, which one of them was the nicest or um, has the newest stuff or whatever their arguments were. <clears throat> Jesus is gonna show them not the answer as much as just their perspective is all wrong. It's gonna be more about how you live your attitude as a servant and your humility. This is what Jesus is gonna talk about. So there in verse two, he calls a little child um, and a little child comes over. Uh, and this is really what the rest of this uh, dissertation is gonna be about, is children. Uh, and, and you might think we're gonna leave the topic of children later in the chapter, but we're still on the topic of children when you think we're not there anymore. So just a heads up on that. Um, but um, interesting, um, 
as far as character tests, Jesus is gonna answer this question and puts a child right there. Um, now, now, what's coming up soon in our study in Matthew chapter 19, um, we're gonna see, uh, look, flip over the page to 1913. Um, it says, then there were brought unto him little ch uh, children that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, suffer the little children, forbid them not to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So right there, the chapter after the one we're in tonight about children, the disciples are telling kids, get out of here, you little brats. Like, do you see the problem here? I, I think that's the problem of humanity. We read the Bible, we hear the Bible, then we walk away and do the opposite. And that's what's gonna happen. Um, I, I love that Jesus wants to have the little children to be on his knee where he's blessing them and laying his hands on them. Uh, I love that. Um, and for kids to be happy about that, doing that, 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 that shows us a little bit about Jesus. Um, uh, I'm, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I hated the idea of, you know, uh, sitting on someone's knee. I was not good at that. Uh, in fact, I've got evidence. This is a, f a family photo of me and my two sisters. Um, and we're sitting on Satan's lap. Uh, I mean, I mean, Santa, sorry. Um, yeah, now, now, this picture is so funny because um, my sister Jenny is the oldest and you can tell she's just standing there going, you know, my, my brother and sister, like I can't even enjoy Santa because they're like, and then you see Santa and he's like, what am I supposed to do? Um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking he smells like roast beef and cheese or whatever, I don't know what, what does elves say there. Um, but uh, this, this picture kind of pretty much tells the story, but, um, but for kids to sit on somebody's lap, um, you know, um, if you look at my face there, <laughs> uh, not very happy, but, um, but Jesus had a friendly disposition that kids really loved and he would go up, the kids would want to come up to him and the, the disciples were the ones pushing him away. But in our story here in Matthew 18, Jesus calls for a child and the child comes and stands in the middle. He says, see this, this is it right here. What is he talking about? Um, what does it mean, uh, this idea of childlike faith? Um, that's something we're gonna have to kind of talk about here. Um, so, um, so in verse three and four, it goes on. It says in verse three, and, and Jesus then said, verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same as greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what are we gonna do? Uh, Jesus uses some simple analogies for, to help all of humanity understand. I love the, the, the universal uh, images Jesus gives, not only to the people of you know, 2,000 years ago, but they're images we still can see today. Um, when he talks about these analogies, they stand the test of time. What, what, allow, what is it that allows someone to come into the kingdom of heaven? heaven you, you, it says you must be like one of these little children if you wanna get into the kingdom and be in the, the greatest in the kingdom. You gotta be like one of these little children. By the way, don't forget to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter three, verses three through four, Nicodemus, the, you know, the Pharisee at nighttime, he went to Nick at night and talked to him. And he, and he told Nicodemus and he said, you, know, he said you, you must be born again unless you be born again you will not see the uh, kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man you know, be born uh, when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus was like, oy vey, you know. 
have I been, you know, like, are you really a teacher in all of Israel? Like, it's kind of a funny story there, but, but Jesus is not talking about literally going into the mother's womb and being born again, but the idea of spiritually being born again, which is interesting because that links to this idea of you, you need to become like a little child to enter into the kingdom. Not only be born again, but after you're born, you've got to go through that spiritual childhood. Now, when you say, what, what are you talking about? Well, you know, when, when, you, when you're born again, Romans 10, 9 and 10, confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, repenting of your sins and accepting the work of the cross, that's when you're born again. Um, by the way, there's people that kind of act like salvation is a process over time. And we'll start to see if you're really born again. And there's this, there's this kind of thing out there with some churches that kind of say, you can't just say a prayer and be born again. That's incorrect. Read Romans 10, verse nine and 10. Uh, what is it required for a person to be saved? It's really super clear. Now, there are some nuances that are interesting. Like once you are born again, you're gonna see fruit and good works that come from a person who's saved, but that's not how they're saved. They're saved by being born again. It's an instant in time. It's a decision that is made of repentance and belief and a confession with your mouth. Um, I, I reject this whole idea. Another thing, by the way, I have a problem with is when people say, you have to walk down in front of a crowd and Brett, you have the secret thing where they slip up their hands on Sundays. Um, they have to publicly declare their faith. Uh, if they don't publicly declare Jesus, then, then I won't uh, publicly declare them before my father. Like, and they make this big case. It's just wrong. Um, listen, a person will eventually, if they, if they get saved, they're gonna be required to declare that at some point or in time. But I don't believe that has to be at the moment when a person accepts the Lord. And by the way, there's all kinds of stories of quiet, private conversions. Uh, the Philippian jailer, he didn't walk, you come, I'll wait, is the band plays just as I am. He'll walk down the Philippian jail uh, and we will have counselors there for him. Like that didn't happen. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch were out in the middle of nowhere. And the guy says, I believe. Well, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Well, Billy Graham's not here. Um, and uh, we don't have your bath, but baptism.com robes that we didn't have time to order and all this stuff that people make up. Um, no, you can be saved. And, and by the way, the number one fear that people have is getting in front of a crowd. Why would we let that be the thing that keeps them from accepting Christ? Um, later on, they'll have time to confess their faith and declare it publicly. Anyway, I think we, we create it, uh, some people wanna create it, make it harder than it needs to be. Um, I love that we can be born again uh, and it's an event. Just like when your child was born, they came into this world as a new little life and the same thing happens to the believer. But after that, they don't immediately become spiritually adults. I think there's a, there's a childlike faith that is being sort of referred to here in Matthew chapter 18. Um, and, and I love it. There's a difference, by the way, um, between childlike and childish. That's something we need to talk about. Um, childlike is criticized um, oftentimes uh, as is being childish, but I think for different reasons. Um, some people don't like childlike faith because they think, you know, oh, I've been there before and they're just such an immature. They, they'll, they'll learn, it's not as great. Like, like the old crusty Christians sometimes ruin it for the new believers because they've sort of lost faith or lacked faith. And, and you know, I've, I've seen this where, um, you know, they say, oh, you know, you're a new Christian, so you're all excited about lifting your hands and singing songs expressively in church. And I've been there and done that back when I was a child. You know, now you got arthritis and so your shoulder, you're kind of like uh, doing this, sort of the lower phrasing of the Lord kind of thing. And, um, you know, or what, like, don't take away the joy. 
the, the new Christian, I've seen this, where they'll come and say, man, I read a scripture um, and it's amazing. Um, the Bible says that we can pray and he heals our, hears our prayers and it says pray without ceasing. And you're like, been there, done that. Are you a crusty Christian? Don't be. Uh, peel back the, the, you know, old calluses and the hard heartedness and get back to being like a child, faith like a child, child, not childish, childlike faith. You must have that kind of childlike faith. What does childlike faith look like? There's an interesting question. I'll, I'll throw out a few ideas for you to think about. I'm not sure this is exhaustive. But number one, have you ever noticed that children gen generally are trusting? Um, Sometimes that's a problem today, isn't it? With the corruption of a wackos and weirdos we have today. But generally children are trusting. They'll trust people. Um, in the same way to be a childlike faith person, you have to just kind of in a childlike way, just throw your trust onto Jesus and trusting Jesus, trusting God is uh, you know, such a cool thing. Um, you know, when you were a child, you, you trusted your parents, uh, hopefully. And I know there's other stories that aren't so good, but most of us never thought, I hope we're gonna have food today. Um, most of us grew up in a, a culture that said, I'm, I'm, I hope I have a roof over my head tonight. Um, I hope I have clothes to wear. But as a child, you just learned to trust that your parents were gonna take care of you. Um, and, and some of you can say, well, Brett, I didn't have that, but th this is what you have to do with the Lord. The Lord is the one who said, the birds don't worry about what they're gonna eat or wear, so you shouldn't worry about it either. That's childlike trust. Now, what happens when you become a junior higher? Sorry if you're a junior higher here tonight, um, but basically you're demon possessed until you're in high school. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding, just a little humor. Uh, no, middle school, um, I'll, I'll just give you a heads up for you middle schoolers. Um, uh, you're gonna regret everything you're doing right now. Um, you'll never see me show pictures of me in junior high on this screen, because uh, it was not a pretty sight. Uh, the decisions I made were stupid. Uh, but, but the interesting thing is, um, you go from a childlike faith in your parents to where mom and dad are lame, pretty much. And I've seen that happen in the spiritual progression of people. You start entering your junior high where you start knowing stuff and you're thinking you're smarter than everybody else. And, and I think there's a lot of Christians that stay in that junior high mode spiritually. Um, you know, what, what were those lines your parents were feeding you all those years? You know, I'm not sure if my mom and dad have a clue. And, and sometimes there's people that go through that kind of stuff. And then you get back into high school where you're somewhat sane again, for the most part. Um, uh, but, but it's college where it gets bad again. It's your second junior high phase when you get into college. Uh, you old people know what I'm talking about, right? Um, you college kids are like, what is he talking about? You'll find out when you're 50. Um, but this, this, you know, this new round of I think I know better and I think I know what to do and I think I know stuff and I'm educated. Um, but still, I think that's why this, this is so universal what Jesus is talking about here saying, man, as little children, it's, it's easier to be those who trust God and accept his word. Um, I'm so thankful for me. I'm so thankful my mom led me to the Lord at a, a young age, uh, five years old. I, I mean, I knew about Jesus, but it was literally five years old when my mom said, Brett, you need to be born again. You need to accept Jesus as your personal savior. And she spelled it out to me, gave me some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which she knew the way to my heart. Uh, by the way, all the big events in my life had to do with food. I'm just gonna say it. Um, <laughs> Um, when I met my wife, it was Jeff Roberts, who's an Athey Creeker here. He, uh, he, I was in high school at a track meet 
and I was, you know, uh, competing in the, in the district track meet, and Jeff said, I'm gonna introduce you to um, your wife. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And uh, we walk over. I just, I just finished, you know, uh, throwing the javelin. And I, I, I went over to the, uh, there was a concession stand where the school we were visiting, Grass Pass High School, the cavemen. Um, we were visiting that school. And, um, and there, um, Jeff pointed to this girl that was in the concession stand. And there she was. She was one of the cheerleaders of the enemy school, Grass Pass. And she was serving hamburgers. She had a hamburger in her hand. <laughs> And I said, that's my wife. No, I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But, uh, but that's a, that was the first time I ever saw Debbie and, and I've been completely in love ever since. Um, <laughs> oh man, well, be that as it may. I don't know why I told you that. Oh yes, when I accepted Jesus. Uh, uh, um, you know, I was five years old. The reason I'm so thankful for that is because um, I'm worried that my, the older I would have gotten, I think I might have, been too stubborn to accept Jesus. That's where it gets really sad. The older a person gets, the more unlikely it seems that they'll enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's why when you see an older person accept the Lord, it's one of those moments we all tend to marvel and we think, wow, that's amazing that an 80 year old person accepted Jesus uh, as their savior. Like that is a big deal if you ask me. Because, uh, but usually it's not because they've become like a child. Usually it's because of just being broken through life. And you realize there's something more. There's something that we, we need uh, that you don't have. Um, but either way, salvation. So Jesus is talking about, the, when he's talking about childlike, the idea is putting away cynical distrust uh, that, that adults tend to have. Um, and it's, and uh, you know, trusting God is big enough to deal with our sins. Um, and, uh, you know, and I love, you know, just trusting that his mercy does endure forever, like Psalm 136 declares over and over and over again. His mercy endureth forever. So uh, don't get back, dragged back into that junior high mentality. If you're not a Christian, if you're watching online and you're, you're still kind of cynical and, and critical, one of the things you're gonna be required to do is put, it, put aside your cynicism, put aside your criticism and say, I'm gonna choose to just as, as a child accept that Jesus knows what he's talking about and that the Bible is true. And I would give you a, a strong word, that's the way to go. Um, um, now, the second thing we observe about children is children just know they can't do certain things. You know, mommy, can you help me with my tent, my shoes, tying my shoes? I love that the innocence of children, they just know, I, I can't do it. I can't, you know, change my own diaper. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think I've known of any child that walked around, yes, I changed my own diapers. Like, uh, uh, th th there's a helplessness. And little kids know there's things that I can't do. Um, you know, the older you get, you, you think, I can do everything. I don't need your help. I, I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. And that's just the seemingly grown-up sort of attitude. Um, and, and, you know, it transfers. Some of, you guys, some of you guys, you will not take directions when you're driving. You will not look it up on your iPhone and say, okay, I'm gonna, nope, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna drive all day, even if I run out of gas, looking for this location. Some of you won't ask for help in the store because you wanna be self-sufficient. Um, the older we get, that's kind of who we are. But there's a need, uh, and Jesus is the only one who can provide these things. So becoming like a child, we're not saying, you know, being childish, running around, you know, bonking each other's head, pulling each other's hair and stuff like that. But the idea is trusting and knowing that you, there's certain things you can't do. And one of the things you can't do is save yourself from your sin. You have to have childlike faith. Um, and then the third thing I might add is uh, children are not afraid to ask for help. 
Um, they know they can't do certain things, but they also are willing to ask. Um, and that's why you have to ask and seek and knock. And the Lord is faithful to answer. Um, the Lord is the one who can save. And he does all the work. Like a parent who does all the work changing the diaper and tying the shoes and dressing the little whippersnapper, um, the Lord does that with you. He dresses you with the robe of his righteousness. That's him. He washes your sins away. Um, he's the one only who can do that. Um, so the difference between childish and childlike faith, unspoiled and innocent is the idea. Trusting the Lord is the childlike. Childish is running around pridefully thinking you're a child and just doing goofy things. And I've seen a, a new movement, by the way, that's kind of ugly where older people are acting like it's really cool to still be child. They'll say childlike, but it's actually childish. And that's the difference, that they somehow didn't discern or didn't get the memo. What memo? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, when talking about real what love looks like, um, you know, Paul says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So don't go around saying, well, Jesus said you have to become like a child, so I'm gonna run around doing, you know, skateboarding in the market uh, when I'm 35 years old. That's, that's childish. That's not childlike, and you're making people mad when you do that. People don't like that. Um, that's a freebie for, for if you're wondering, if you're a 33-year-old person uh, and you're wondering about that. So, so it's, it's just kind of a funny thing. I've noticed there's like a trend in, um, in Gen Zers and even some millennials that, that they wanna be Peter Pan uh, and never grow up. Uh, but that's not what the Bible's teaching. Um, we're to move from the, mi the milk to the meat. Uh, there's a maturity that's supposed to happen. So don't, don't mistake what Jesus is saying for running around acting childish. You see the difference between childish versus childlike? Good. Some of you are giving me a blank stare. I'm worried about you. Uh, no, no, okay. Um, well, back to our text here. So, so um, you know, humbling yourself like a little child, that will be the greatest, verse four. Uh, in the kingdom of heaven. I love that. Well, verse five goes on and says, and whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. So who's he talking about? Well, is he talking about the child that's standing there or is he talking about, well, see, there's two perhaps takeaways here. One is a practical application, but then there's also, I believe, possibly a spiritual application. And the practical application um, you need to be one that is able to receive kids. That's very practical. I think that any good Christian person will care about, love on, be thoughtful toward children. Um, in fact, the word receive there, where it says in verse uh, five, whoso shall receive a little child, um, uh, the, the Greek word there is dachomai, uh, which means to grant access and welcome in. Children should be granted access and be welcomed in. And, and Jesus is saying, if you do that, um, then uh, you're receiving me, Jesus said. Uh, you say, well, why are you making that point? Well, practically, we are a culture that's getting further and further away from receiving children. To be a child in our culture, I would argue, is we're, we're living in one of the most hostile time periods against children, for sure, in my lifetime. Hostile? Well, that's even if you get born because of abortion, the, you know, by millions and millions of babies are not being born. And man, I think there's gonna be judgment uh, that's coming on this Christ-rejecting sinful world as we worship at the altar of Moloch with our abortion you know, fest that we're in America. It's horrible. <clears throat> but not, if that's not bad enough, 
<clears throat> we're, you know, uh, pedophilia is now out and rampant in our schools. They're teaching kids uh, horrible things in, in the schools. You know, um, some of the schools are doing stuff that is unspeakable. Some of the books that they have in the libraries for children, uh, you know, and, and if you're a parent who's glib and naive about this, you're thinking, oh, Brad, you're just a bunch of weird Christians that are trying to sound the alarm. We're sounding the alarm of things that are very real and very real threats to your children. Um, don't get me wrong. There's good teachers and good, you know, principals, and I understand that, but there's huge pressure um, from the teachers' unions to do all kinds of sick, sinful, horrible things. The attitude today is to not like children. Um, the idea of having children is being not liked. There's people who say, get kids out of my face. I don't wanna see children. Like that's, that's the attitude we're seeing. A lot of millennials are, the number of you know, um, couples having kids is dropping uh, exponentially. Um, but if you wanna uh, follow God's word, you gotta be welcoming uh, you know, Dakomai is receive little children, grant access and welcome in. You got to grant access to children, uh, even if it's hard on your life. That's why, you know, when you, um, you know, the way it used to be, if, if you had sex, you knew you might be able to have children. And if you were going to have children, then you were kind of committed to caring for that children. So you didn't just go around having sex with whoever you wanted to. The idea is if you're going to live a life with that person and raise children, that was kind of the idea. But when we got into the sexual revolution and, and started saying, who, it's not about procreation, it's about just having fun. Uh, and then when the baby comes, it's just what a nuisance. That goes against everything the Bible teaches about uh, children and, the, and God's view. By the way, you can take the antithesis of verse five and apply it. If you reject such a little one as a child, you reject me. You can, you can say that. Jesus says, if you, if you grant access and welcome in, Zachomai, if you welcome in children, you're receiving me. But if you reject, you can see the, the opposite is true as, as well. So you gotta change your mind if you're a person who's anti-child. That's not a biblical mindset. Um, and, you, and some of you have been kind of jaded by this world and by what the world has to say about children. It's, but it really is a beautiful thing about life. So that there's a practical thing about loving kids, but there's also a spiritual level that we have to kind of consider here. Um, what children is Jesus referring to? He could be referring to the child that's standing there practically, or he could be referring to verse four. Let's take a look again at verse four. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those that humble themselves like children and become believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, um, then we're supposed to receive the new believer, the newborn, born again Christian, to receive them with open arms and to care about them, even though they're not mature spiritually. One of the things I think that happens to people is when they get saved, church people wrongly put pressure on them to suddenly grow up and be a mature Christian. We've done this too, by the way, celebrities. Did you notice that I didn't get on the Kanye West bandwagon? You didn't hear me from the, oh, awesome, we have a new believer in the church. And it's awesome. We've got, you know, Kanye West, yeah! What a win for the team. Did you hear me saying that? No, and there's a reason why. Um, first of all, um, we've all kind of known poor Kanye is a little wacko. We've known that. Poor guy, like he, he literally, I think, has mental, I, I, he has mental issues. Um, which is really sad, but the world still puts him up there and puts him out there. And Joel Osteen even had him. That was awkward. Did anybody see the Joel Osteen clip of Kanye at his church? Woohoo! Uh, Joel is standing in the back going, 
why did we have this guy come to our church? Because uh, it was, it was, he was based, it's a funny thing. Uh, anyway, especially if you know. Anyway. <laughs> but we didn't jump on that bandwagon because, it, you know, um, for, even if he was saved, which I was praying for him, I really was. I was praying that the Lord was doing a work in his heart. Maybe you might say, Brett, he's not saved because he's an anti-Semite. Well, he does seem to be that in his mental insanity. Um, and we should be praying for the poor guy. He's mentally insane. Um, and he has been for a long time. I do, I'm just gonna say that. And, and this world, we just esteem this and the Christian church propped him up. You know, we did that back in the 70s when I was a kid with Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan accepted Jesus. And then he wrote a, an amazing record, Slow Train Coming. And you know, some great songs came out of Bob Dylan. He was a prolific songwriter, amazing guy. And, and Christian was like, wow, we won one for the team for Christians. We got Bobby Dylan. Uh, but then the Christian church smothered the daylights out of him. He was a brand new, born again, new believer. And we didn't really treat him as a new believer, as a born again, new babe in Christ. Somebody should have come along and changed his diapers. And I'm, I'm saying that not you know, insultingly, but like tied his shoes, discipled him, showed, showed him the scriptures and how it all works, rather than putting him out there as the ultimate representation of Christianity. And I think we do that with Bieber and all the other, you know, so-called, you know, people of faith in the celebrity world. Um, and and they're, they're all people that need some time. Um, and we do that, I think, only to our own demise and destruction. It's really sad. So Kanye with his anti-Semitic comments and, you know, they, they, they named him the anti-Semite of the year uh, because of what he's saying about Nazis and Hitler and the Jews and all this stuff. And it's, it's to me, it's just very heartbreaking across the boards. But you know, um, as Christians, we need to remember there needs to be a time for a new believer to, to be a baby, to uh, be on the milk and to, to sort of learn and grow spiritually, give them time to grow. Our, our world doesn't really allow that sometimes. So what, what this could be saying is, um, Jesus saying, if you receive one of these, a newborn babe in Christ, you need to receive them uh, and, and uh, welcome them and care for them as you would, in some sense, spiritually, as you would with a physical child. Does that make sense? Um, and there's argument, by the way. Uh, some scholars say it's one, some scholars say it's the other. I think it's both. You, you gotta receive little children, of course, but you also need to receive the newborn Christian and care for them, tend them, disciple them. That's, that's what the Bible says. Well, back to our text here, verse six. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, now that you know the context of this verse, we know that to be children. You don't wanna offend little children. That's the practical. But what about the spiritual side? If you offend one of these newborn babes in Christ, a newborn again Christian, I wonder if that applies here. If you look at the context, it would seem the one thing you don't wanna do is offend a new Christian. Um, and, and that's something that I see happening all the time. And we offend them by throwing them out there too fast or expecting too much, too much from a brand new believer. <gasps> he said a cuss word. Yeah, he's, he's a newborn babe and he's, just, he's, he's coming from a life of death and he's, he's being transitioned. Now, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for 15 years and you're still dropping the F-bomb, uh, I think you need to read your Bible a little more careful and have somebody come alongside of you, disciple you a little bit. Because um, corrupt communication is something you're not supposed to do according to the Bible. Well, Paul the Apostle said a bunch of cuss words. Uh, I, would, I would challenge you on how Paul was using all those words. I, I'm, I'm noticing it's cool now for Christians to cuss. Have you guys seen that? It's happening. There's a lot of so-called Christians on social media and places, even pastors from the pulpit 
or cussing now because it's so cool. Um, I'm just saying, read your Bible. But if a, a brand new Christian walks into church and they're newly saved and they might drop a, a little cuss word or something, should we all, oh, our virgin ears, oh, you're not even saved because you used a cuss word. Like that, that's ridiculous. Like we, we should not offend uh, a newborn Christian, if you would. Um, so this idea is both spiritual for the newborn Christian, but also practical for children. And, and uh, this, this imagery uh, should be a billboard down in San Francisco. The, the millstone, did you see just yesterday, San Francisco mandates teaching gender identity in elementary school. And the, the reason it's so dastardly, at least this one, is because they're forcefully making sure that teachers do not allow parental involvement. It's, it's that you don't allow parents to know about this. Don't let the parents in the door. The document claims that according to California law, educators do not need permission to teach kids about topics regarding sex and gender identity. Um, a teaching guide for elementary grades um, has been distributed by San Francisco Unified School District instructing educators to explore integrating LGBTQ themes and weaving information about LGBTQ family and gender diversity into your teaching throughout the school year. Throughout the school year. Oregon's always right there with San Francisco. Like we're, we're headed there quickly next. If, if we're not already there, I mean, we're seeing evidence of that. Um, you know, and, and it's amazing how they're teaching this stuff throughout the school year. Meanwhile, what is it? Oregon's like at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to math and reading and stuff like the stuff that schools are supposed to be teaching were horrible across the country. But boy, our gender LGBTQ family and gender diversity studies are just really rocking right now. And that's gonna really help our nation. Uh, it's gonna help us right into the pits of hell. That's where that's leading our nation. Um, and we, we need to understand that. So, so here's the thing. Jesus says here, but who shall shall offend one of these little ones? Um, now the word offend doesn't do us very well because we live in a culture that's, I'm so offended. And so you picture a two-year-old, I'm offended. Like, how does that work? Well, the, the Greek word is an interesting word and you'll recognize it in the Greek, skandalizo. Does anybody wanna guess what word that comes from? Scandal or scandalize. Um, it means to entice to sin. That's the Greek word here. To entice to sin, to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. That's a very exacting definition. Um, and then mislead or misdirect. Exactly what we're doing to our children in, in, in today's culture. And uh, it's heartbreaking to see. Um, the, the word scandalizo is way better than offend. Offend doesn't do the job here as a translation word. You gotta go to the original Greek, skandalizo, uh, to entice to sin, to cause a person to begin to distrust and, um, and desert one who he ought to trust and obey. By the way, Business Insider article uh, just a couple days ago, um, uh, Elon Musk told ex-Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, almost no one was working on child safety when he took over the, you know, the Twitter organization. Elon Musk said it was a crime that former Twitter executives refused to take action against child exploitation, telling co-founder Jack Dorsey that, uh, via Twitter that almost no one was working on child safety until he took over in October of uh, October 27th. Um, man, there's so many places kids can be, you know, uh, you know, scandalizo or drawn away, uh, and there's so many tools the enemy uses, and man. The Bible says it's better for a millstone to be tied around a person's neck and thrown into the sea. 
Um, what are these millstones? Well, this is something I showed a little bit of. Uh, remember, this, this is a video in Capernaum when we were there a couple times ago. And, um, and Capernaum was a millstone factory. So here's Jesus, and there's the Millennium Falcon, the Catholics built. Um, and there's, there's the, the synagogue of Capernaum, really cool place to visit. But as I wanted to show you, um, a lot of these cone-shaped and round-shaped stones, you see the cone-shaped stones there? And one of them has the lid on top of it. You pour the grain into the top and then you spin that stone with a pole that goes through and you spin it around and it grinds the mill or you know, the grain it into fine powder or flour. Um, so when they unearthed archeologically Capernaum, they thought, man, they either had a bread factory here or they realized later, oh, this is a millstone factory. Capernaum, that's what they did, is they made millstones and then shipped them all throughout the region of all of Israel. Um, so here's Jesus. I'm sure as he says, it'd be better for one, I, I bet he was pointing to one of these millstones sitting right there saying, it'd be better for one of these 500 pounds. I've, I've taken a look up close at these and these millstones, the average millstone, um, here I'll get off the Millennial Falcon there. Um, uh, these, these millstones, the top part alone probably weighs about 500 pounds. So even if you're a great swimmer, uh, you're going down with a millstone <laughs> tied around your neck. Um, that's the point. And, and the Jews couldn't think of a more horrific image because they hated water. They weren't into swimming. They were very afraid. And, and by the way, the, the Jews to this day don't have a giant navy because they've never been super proficient in water uh, as a navy or throughout all history. Uh, during Solomon's reign, they had a little tiny bit of a navy going, but uh, that's it, uh, and then modern day. Um, so all that to say, uh, you know, Jesus is saying, this is, this is what's gonna happen to the person who scandalizo, misdirects, misleads a child in the wrong direction. It'd be better. In other words, it'd be a better day to have a millstone tied around uh, than to be found out as one who's misled a child. Uh, that, that's something that I think, there's almost too much for us to cover in that tonight, how much we're being offensive to children in our culture. Um, one of the things at Athey Creek, we want our children to be blessed. Um, we want our kids to be well cared for and loved on and pointed to Jesus. And that's one of the main things we focus on. Um, and I love what our children's ministry is doing. They do an amazing job uh, teaching and instructing our co-op that we have uh, with kids and parents uh, it's a very, it, we, we thought there'd be, you know, 35 or 40 pe people interested, hundreds and hundreds of kids and teachers and people involved with our co-op. Uh, and it, it, I mean, there's a lot of things we need to probably do. But don't forget, it, kids are important. Um, I think there's a tendency to not think of kids, uh, especially in a big church like this and think, well, kids are a nuisance, get them out, put them in a classroom somewhere. Uh, I want you to know that's not the mentality. We pray about very much how do we, teach our kids, care for our kids. How do we equip, equip parents? That's such a big deal. In um, 1801, a pastor of a Scottish church turned in his reg resignation. And as he did, the elder said, why are you turning in your resignation? He said, well, for this past year, I've had but one convert, wee Bobby Moffat. Um, if you can picture a Scottish guy saying, wee Bobby Moffat. Um, so who was we? Well, that was the only guy, that little, little child that accepted the Lord. Well, as it turns out, we, Bobby Moffat, grew up, uh, I know this picture's not very uh, endearing of him, but it was 1801, 1801, when um, Robert Moffat went and uh, opened the doors to mission work in Africa. Uh, Robert Moffat might just be one of the most instrumental uh, people that brought Jesus into all of Africa. Um, if you're interested, you know, study him. Mary, his oldest daughter, married a guy named David Livingston, 
who was a powerful evangelist. So who would have known this little Scottish preacher, well, we little Bobby Moffat accepted Jesus, uh, one person in our church, so I resign. But that was probably the most important thing that ever happened to that Scottish minister is leading that one little child to Christ. Um, we take our kids seriously at Athey Creek. Um, I remember reading about a schoolmaster that would teach hard in the classroom, but once the dismiss dismissal happened, the teacher would run out to the front of the schoolhouse and would bow to each one of the children as they walked down the stairs of the schoolhouse and headed for home. Um, when they asked him, why do you bow to the children? He said, you never know which one of these will be the next famous preacher of the gospel, prime minister of England, or someone great. And that's the, that's the mentality we should have with our children. Don't just dismiss kids. Well, I'm, on, I'm running out of time. Uh, verse seven. Whoa. <laughs> yep. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to them up to that man by whom the offense cometh. Um, now, by the way, in the Bible, the word woe is, is used, and we don't use the word woe unless you're a surfer. Oh, dude. Like, um, we don't use it. So in the Bible, there's two kinds of woes. Woe unto lamentation, and then there's a woe unto condemnation. Can anybody guess which one this one is? Condemnation, right. Um, Jesus is uh, you know, condemning um, the offenses, which is linked back to the word, but whoso shall offend a little child. So we're still on that topic, by the way. Woe unto them that offend. Um, it must be that the offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Um, so Jesus is just putting an exclamation point on the condemnation here, to, on that person that has, needs a millstone. Verse eight, wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter in to life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Um, what is this talking about? So should you start cutting out your eyeball if you look at pornography? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, this is not to be taken literally um, about cutting out your eyeball. Um, but it does mean that you should deal with your sin very drastically and drastic measures need to be taken. You know, um, it's funny how um, people, you know, read something like this and think, oh, well, I'm glad we don't have to cut out our eyes and stuff. And, you know, better to cast out your eyeball than to be thrown into hell. But the, the, still the graphic language that Jesus is using here is meant to shake us up. It, it is meant to startle. And you're supposed to be kind of like, what does this mean? And, and I think it means better to, you know, get rid of something that's gonna offend than to go into hellfire. Um, maybe today you might say better to take away the iPhone from your child than to let them have the whole world of perversion at their fingertips. Uh, but, but they need a phone to call, get them a jitterbug phone. You know, one of those little senior citizen phones that, you know, have big numbers. Uh, yeah, but my child won't like that. Tough bananas. Um, you know, uh, and, and I'm sure there's some kids right now going, don't pull up, I, I love my iPhone. Um, well, the problem is we adults are addicted to our iPhones. It's a problem for all of us. 
But if, you, if you're naively thinking that your kids are being angelic with the iPhone, you're probably just totally naive and not seeing it. Um, you know, it's amazing. The movies, the, the books that are out and available to our kids, the, the, the other stuff other kids are talking about. Um, you know, the idea is to take drastic measures, especially related to your children. See, we haven't left the topic of children here. That's the thing we have to kind of remember. You'll see it that as we keep going. But make sure at all costs is kind of what Jesus is saying. Don't let your kids be misguided or offended being taught to go the wrong direction. Don't, don't do that. Even if they see things that are wrong in public school, make sure your kids are recognizing it as wrong and re- rehearse that with them. Um, so that's kind of important to know, radical. Um, I've always mentioned the Little House of the Prayer episode where Carolyn, remember she has an infection in her leg, I think it is, and she gets out a knife and she's got a fever, so she's starting to go crazy. And she's reading this verse from Matthew 18. If your you know, right uh, hand of, or thy foot offend thee, cut it off. And then she's there with a knife as she's sweating. Does anybody remember that episode? Am I alone? Yeah, you guys, you guys remember that? And I remember thinking, I don't think that's what that scripture means. Uh, somebody help poor Carolyn. Uh, and I think Aunt Charles burst in and saved her or something. But anyway, um, now um, let's take a look at, as we continue verse 10, it says, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. See, we're still on the topic of children. I think you need to keep that in mind in verses seven, eight, and nine too. I think we're talking about offending children. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. Huh? Well, before we talk about the angels and children, um, the, the word despise means to, in the Greek, to look down on. Um, but uh, so you don't, you're not supposed to look down on. Take heed that you don't look down on one of these little children. Like, you know, that's an important thing. It's an attitude about children that people have. Um, if you have somebody who says, I don't like kids, you might want to show them this verse. Take heed that you not look down on one of these little children. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels do always behold the face of God. Now here is where we get the idea of a guardian angel. If you've ever wondered where that comes from, the children seem to have a guardian angel of some kind. Paul points out that when we get to heaven, we're actually gonna um, judge the angels. Did you know that? That's a, I wonder if the angels are like, oh, great these wacko people and their failures, but someday they're gonna judge us. First Corinthians chapter six, verse three, you can read that. But um, I wonder if part of that judging of the angel is gonna be asking your guardian angel, you know, like, where were you when I got hit with that rock in the head? You know, like, uh, like where, what were you doing? Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe that'll be part of the judging, I don't know. But the idea is I think children do have, at least from this verse, the idea is a guardian angel. Um, my guardian angel probably needed, needed a raise. Uh, <laughs> when he was, uh, now do they continue through older uh, adulthood? I don't know. Some people I've noticed, some commentaries sort of, they, they kind of talk about the, the, how the child becomes an angel and that when he gets to heaven, their angel after they die, then they become an angel here and then they're gonna be seeing the face of the father, which is in heaven. That's not the, the no true linguistic scholar agrees with that view. Uh, Bing Crosby, you know, sings about the littlest angel of all. And I, I have to confess, I like Bing and I like that song. Uh, I like that little, The Littlest Angel. How many of you guys know about The Littlest Angel song from Bing? What? <laughs> okay, never mind. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with that song. It ends where the littlest uh, um, angel becomes the proudest angel of them all. Yeah, you guys are like, oh, that's not a good thing to say. No, because the proudest angel is the devil. 
and that's what got him into trouble. But anyway, uh, I digress. Um, now I've ruined that song for those of you who loved it. Um, verse 11. Um, for the Son of Man uh, is come to save that which was lost. Boy, I love that verse. Why did he come? To save that which was lost. You and I were lost. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone his own way. That's Isaiah talking about us. And I'm, I'm so thankful for this. So he's come to save that which is lost. Verse 12, how think ye? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, doth he not leave the 99 and go into the mountains? and seeketh that which has gone astray. And if so be that he find it, verily I send you, he rejoices more, that the, uh, more of that sheep than of the 99, which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. God says, I'm gonna watch out the sheep. He's the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd. And I'm gonna keep my eyes on the sheep. Um, now, by the way, um, again, we haven't left the topic of little children. Um, in Bible terms, sometimes we uh, have the wrong idea of age. Um, like for example, in Genesis 22, uh, five, remember it says that Abraham took the lad. Let's take a look at that real quick. Uh, Genesis 22, five, and Abraham said unto the young men, abide ye here with the ass and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again. So when you colored the Sunday school picture, how old was Isaac? Probably 10, 12 years old or so when you colored the picture. Well, as it turns out, he was probably uh, um, in his mid to um, younger 30s when that happened. If you look up the Hebrew word that's employed there, it's not, it's not like he was a 12 year old. Um, so that's kind of important. Isaac was probably, some people argue he was 33, which would make sense because of the picture of Jesus that I don't have time to go into. Or what about the Elisha and the bear story? Remember where Elisha uh, is walking, he's a bald guy and these kids, these little, little children come and say, go up thou bald man and they make fun of his baldness, which is not recommended if you read your Bible. In fact, let's take a look at that. Um, so Elijah went up from thence unto Bethel and he was going up by the way, there came forth little children. There it is, little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, go up thou bald head, go up thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came out forth two she bears out of the wood and tear the 40 and two children of them. That's a nice story for you mom and dads to read your children at night before you're tucking them in. Let me tell you about Elisha and his bald head. That's kind of the uh, reverse of the three little bear story. Uh, anyway. Um, now, again, the, the King James, uh, you know, puts that little children, but if you look at the, um, the Hebrew text of that, it's actually people in their 20s. So a bunch of, uh, you know, 20-year-olds uh, were going on, bald man, bald man. Now, this raises an interesting question. Um, because of age and what, what constitutes a little child and, and what is the age of accountability? There, there does seem to be biblical notion that there's an age where a child is saved automatically because they haven't really had a, a chance to know or learn uh, the love of Christ and their need for salvation. Um, and what is that age? And the thing is, we don't know. But I do wonder if it's older than what we think it is. Some of you might think, well, it's five years old. Brett, you accepted Jesus when you're five. Well, I wonder, have you ever wondered, maybe the age of accountability is different for everybody? Because I know some 20 year olds that I kind of get a sense that they're, they're, they're just not mature enough to to think about, I'm not trying to be insulting, not all 20 or just some. 
Um, and it, when your, your brain is fully formed and functioning, it makes me wonder about, you know, what, what is this age of accountability? It is interesting in the Levitical law, if you recall, um, from zero to 29, uh, they were um, all being instructed and taught. But it was from 30 to 49, they would be in, in the heat of ministry, uh, busy serving the Lord. And then from 50 and upward, they would train the 29 and younger people. That was the way it worked. But the Bible does divide in those categories. But the idea of you know, making sure that your children are under the good shepherd, not allowing the, the one to go astray, that's what's happening to a lot of our kids today is they're going astray. We're seeing that happen. Um, the irreligious uh, movement and the deconstruction movement that's happening where kids are saying, forget your you know, parents' faith and deconstruct your faith. And a lot of kids aren't reconstructing correctly or at all. Um, don't forget, mom and dad, what the Bible says. Proverbs 22, six says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Don't give up, mom and dad. Keep training, keep teaching. Um, because uh, it's, it's typical, like Isaiah 53, six, like I mentioned earlier, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, um, you know, we've all gone astray and the Lord searches us out, the searches and saves the lost. How thankful I am. The love of the Lord uh, is beautiful here. Notice in this dissertation here in verses 11 through 14, we see the love of the Lord on display, how he loves us. Uh, and what are they really quickly? Number one, um, his love for us is unconditional. Um, even though the naughty little sheep is going astray, he doesn't say, well, tough bananas, let the wolf eat them, lamb chops for dinner. Like he doesn't just say, uh, I'm done with you. His love is unconditional. Secondly, we see um, the Lord's love is individual. He cares about the, the one and even leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Just because it's one person, the Lord doesn't say, ah, oh, whatever, it's just one person. Man, the Lord is going, he's, some of you, you know the Lord went after you personally. Um, and he saved you and sought you out. Um, but also, I love in this de depiction, it's also his love is emotional. Um, he rejoices here. It says, um, you know, um, that he rejoices when he finds, verse 13, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep. The Lord rejoices when the, the lost sheep is found. Uh, kind of like the prodigal son story, Luke chapter 15, when the prodigal comes back, the father rejoices and kills the fatted calf and puts a ring on his finger and uh, all that stuff, shoes on his feet. Uh, the prodigal story pictures that emotional love too um, that he has. Well, we're almost done. Verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican uh, or a Democrat. Uh, no, no, publican, remember, publicans. Okay, now, so this is where we get some of the key information for church discipline, as we're gonna call it here. When somebody's behaving badly in the church, if somebody's wronged you, then what's the biblical thing? Go on Instagram and tell everybody, this person wronged me. It's not what the Bible says. Um, uh, it says we're to, we're to do this. Matthew chapter 18, this is kind of a, a classic little scripture on how to. Um, and if you're just looking at first, you're supposed to go to them privately and say, hey, th there's something you know, that's happened here that we need to talk about. And if they've wronged you or, or hurt you, 
You're supposed to go and, and talk to them about it. If, if you win them over and they hear you, then you've gained your brother. So that's the first thing. Hopefully that, that's what happens uh, when you're in disagreement. Now you say, okay, well, what are we supposed to do? Then if they still don't listen, you say, yeah, whatever. Then you go and get two or three witnesses that know of the problem and they know it's legit. Well, bro, what if we don't have two or three witnesses? Then you don't, you're, I think you leave it there. When in doubt, leave it out. I think you're supposed to let it go. If you don't have two or three witnesses, you're kind of, I think that's the end of what you're supposed to do. You went to them, you talked to them, but you don't have other witnesses, then I think you're supposed to leave it to the Lord at that point. Um, but if you get two or three witnesses, people with you, you can go and try to talk to them. Um, and, um, and hopefully that person will be brought to their senses and repent of whatever they've done. But if they neglect to hear the two or three witnesses, that's the next step is to hire a lawyer and sue them for everything they have. Oh, no, that's not it. You're supposed to then, this is gonna seem foreign to a lot of you, but this is what the Bible says, go to the church. Well, who's at the church? And this is where I think a lot of churches have gone wrong because we don't have elders and pastors and deacons and leadership in a church structure as much anymore. But when, when the Bible talks about a church, that's just not people meeting in the woods saying we're a church because we're meeting. No, there's a church has to have pastors, elders, and deacons by definition. Um, you have to have leadership in a church and you're supposed to bring the issue to the leadership of that church. And that happens from time to time. We will meet with people who've got this sort of a case and they've, they've went and talked to the person and hopefully they're willing. But if they're not willing to come and talk to the church, um, then what are you supposed to do? If they're not listening to the church or wanting to talk to the church, that's when the, you, you let him be unto thee as a heathen man and as a publican or a sinner who's not repentant. Um, you say, Brett, that's kind of brutal. Well, that's how serious Jesus meant for the church to be a, a, a role in helping solve problems. So we have a team of elders who, and pastors and leaders who were, were willing to meet with you and, uh, and talk through some of those things. So um, what if they neglect what the elders say, then you, uh, you turn them over to their own sin. First Corinthians chapter five, read that. There's an example of that uh, where there's, they take this one guy who's boldly sinning and he won't repent. And the church is like, whatever. So they, they, Paul says, you're supposed to deliver him unto Satan for the purpose of destroying his flesh, hopefully that he might be saved in the end. Um, and that, that's something that has to happen. By the way, I have to say this, um, I know we're running out of time, but there have been times a lot in the past where the elders will take a ton of time meeting with people and going through things and, and we'll have to tell someone they're no longer welcome at the church because of this, because they've just rejected good, solid biblical counsel and they're in rebellious, sinful condition. And we've asked them, asked them to leave for the hope that they'll repent ultimately. But what really has happened also is the disrespect for church leadership today is pretty profound. And I, I know some of that is because a lot of church leaderships have been disrespectful or not respectable. And so uh, we've all just kind of blown off one of those elders now. But it's funny how many times at Athey Creek, I, I'll just tell you, I'm just gonna be honest with you, this might seem self-serving, but we'll do counseling, hours and hours of painstaking counseling and working with say like a couple, a married couple. And maybe the husband is way off course and he's just being mean and spiritually abusive and, and just kind of, um, you know, telling lies to people in the church and stuff. There's a point after hours and hours of counseling and work, we will tell that guy he's no longer welcome in the church. But here's what happens. Um, church people don't respect the leadership. So we've had a situation like, for example, at Athey where the elders have 
uh, you know, uh, moved a person out of Athey Creek. But then that guy goes and tells all his buddies, yeah, those elders, they don't love me and they're mean and they just want me out of the church. And, and then he goes and tells them all this stuff. And for some reason, they choose to believe that single guy than the whole pastoral elder team at Athey Creek. And my question to you is, if you're that person, by the way, because we have that happening right now, um, if you're that person, say those elders and they don't know what they're doing, my question is, have you sat with the man and the wife for hours and hours as we have and gone through all the details? Or are you just hearing it from the guy who's saying, you know, the Athey Creek wronged me? I'm just saying, if, if I feel a little passionate about this, it's because the, the, the church that doesn't just say, we're gonna submit to the leadership of a church elder team, it's hurtful. It's hurtful to the church. It's hurtful to the wife. It's hurtful to the leadership. It's hurtful to the rest of the congregation. As you go and say, I know more than that whole team of guys that spent hours and hours doing counseling. I'm just a little concerned that there's a lot of um, lack of real respect for just, uh, if you knew that elders at Athey, these are guys that don't wanna kick people out of the church for any reason. These are guys that are careful and prayerful. And I'm just saying, uh, and, and I would say, if you say, well, Brett, I don't trust the leadership at our church, then you really should leave the church. I really think like I should leave the church if, if the elders are not trustworthy here at Athey. And that happens. Churches have untrustworthy elders and pastors. But I believe that uh, Athey Creek has demonstrated careful, prayerful uh, dealing with these things. And yet there's still some, some what I'm gonna call spiritual knuckleheads out there that just, they think they know more than the guys that have actually done all the hard counseling and hours of time. Does that make sense? I know it might sound self-serving, but it's, it's something that I, I'm shocked at how hurtful um, that can be to the congregation, and it is. Well, I'm out of time. So quickly, just a couple more verses, um, back to this. Um, uh, verse 18, verily I say unto you, whosoever shall uh, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whosoever shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Question. What do you need to loose and bind? Well, answer is keys. This reminds me of Matthew 16, 19, where Jesus told the, the disciples, not Peter. Uh, Peter, was he the only one given the keys to the kingdom? No, it was given to all the followers of Jesus. And these are the same people. Um, I believe this is another evidence that, we're, that in, you know, the Catholics thinking Peter got the keys and he's the Pope. Um, this is evidence that actually he's talking about binding and loosing the same topic and it's actually all the saints, all of the church that are part of the kingdom of heaven, uh, loosing and binding. Uh, it's given to those who've made confession like Peter saying, you're the Christos, the Messiah. Well, verse 19, and again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my father, which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. Does that constitute a church then? If you have two people gathering and then the Lord's in the midst? No, but the Lord's in your midst. If you're gathered around Jesus, he's there in your midst. The church still needs elders, pastors, deacons. Those are the structures of leadership. But I love this. What a, what a beautiful thing. The Lord says, I will be in the midst when two or more are gathered. Well, the reason I was racing toward this is because we covered chapter 21 through 35 on Sunday. So now we're postured for chapter 19. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray that you'd help us as a church just to, to tune into your heart, your mind, especially as it relates to children. Lord, our culture, we, 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 we confess that we have become maybe one of the ugliest cultures in history concerning the treatment of children. And I pray, Lord, that you would 
use us to be good moms and dads and church leaders that care about our kids and we don't leave them to the ways of this world, Lord. I pray that our kids would grow up in love with you, following you, following your word. Help us to receive them in the best sense of this word, like Jesus taught. And also the new believers and the young Christians, Lord, in the same way. So I pray your blessing on those who've taken this long evening and studied the scriptures, may it bring forth good fruit in their lives tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.